everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zauk, and today I sit down with Brianne Kimmel, founder of Worklife Ventures. Worklife Ventures is a future of work focused fund investing in tools and services for people at work. The fund is backed by a who's who of tech, including A16Z partners Mark Andreessen and Chris Dixon, Alexis Ohanian of Reddit and 776, the CEOs of Zoom and Cameo, Twitch co-founder Kevin Lin, executives from Slack and Dropbox, and so many more. She's backed incredible companies through Worklife, including six unicorns already, which are Webflow, Tonal, Hopin, Clubhouse, and former Wharton FinTech guests Pipe and public.com. Business Insider recently named Brianne a top angel investor that every startup should know. Before starting Worklife, she worked at Zendesk, was an instructor at General Assembly, was head of social media at Expedia, and was in the 2016 batch of YC. Today, she also runs an invite-only program called SaaS School for startup founders to learn from the fastest-growing companies like Airtable, Drift, Dropbox, Slack, and many more. I'll link all of this in the description and our Medium article. In today's episode, Brianne and I discuss how she jumped from angel to solo capitalist and the major lessons learned along the way, the rise of the solo capitalist model and how it relates to enterprise sales, the future of work life in the U.S., her investments in Pipe, Public, and Hopin, how she's thinking about these lofty valuations in tech and COVID-enabled tech, empowering creators, and so much more. Let's get started. Hi, Brianne, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. It is fantastic having you on the show today. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. So, Brianne, I'd like to start with a little bit of your background. You know, in my research, I saw you were doing journalism at Kent State, but on the side, there were, you know, all of these investing programs, entrepreneurship, and different initiatives. Where did you get this passion at such a young age? Yeah, it's a great question. I initially studied journalism with the intention of writing stories. And what I quickly uncovered was that I liked building websites more than I liked doing the (laughs) writing aspect. And so um, I had always been sort of building, playing video games, doing things on evenings and weekends that were a little bit more on the tech side of things, as opposed to uh, true traditional journalism, which played well in my favor because now as an investor, I look at a lot of low-code and no-code tools. And so I myself very much started out as someone that was using Wix and Squarespace and sort of the first gen of of no-code and and then ultimately learned how to code. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. And then where did this journey take you after Kent State? Yeah, so I have a I have a really interesting story. I, I actually started college when I was in high school. Quite frankly, I was very bored in high school, and so I decided to uh, test early, start taking classes. Um, started out as a journalism major, was doing a lot of work on campus, um, both in student government. Um, had also helped launch our our campus incubator and accelerator, and so I was always doing these sort of startup facing programs while also building websites and, and finding creative ways to you know get into graphic design or I at the time was thinking a lot about podcasting and video editing and, and things that sort of touch what today is known as, as more of the creator economy. After school I I moved to Sydney, Australia. 
um, you know, grew up in Northeast Ohio, decided to live overseas for a little bit, which was awesome. Um, was in a product role at Expedia where I was based in Sydney for a few years, spent some time in Hong Kong, and then ultimately landed in San Francisco. That's awesome. So how long again were you in Australia, straight out of college? Yeah. So I moved to Sydney straight after school. I was there for about four and a half years, um, long enough to get the equivalent of an Australian green card (laughs) as I do my permanent residency there. At at that time in Sydney, there were, you know, I was working very closely with the Facebook team there, um, was working very closely with with other tech companies. And so it was a very cool ecosystem. Actually, many of my close friends that are now in the Valley at companies like Slack and Gong. And there was this wave of Sydney expats um, that are now very close friends. So it was a great journey. Um, It was also awesome. I mean, I got to spend some time with Mel and Cliff, the co-founders of Canva. And so whenever I go back to Australia, it feels like that ecosystem is just getting bigger and better with every visit. Absolutely. And fintech has been exploding in Australia as well. We would love to get a couple Australian guests on. I think they're in our, our pipeline for the summer of reach out. So stay tuned to see if we're able to get anyone from Australia on the show. So Brienne, I want to pivot to something that I, that I had read. You know, A major trend arising over the last two years really is the rise in solo capitalists. And you have stated that you know, VCs are starting to look more and more like founders. Can you expand on this and explain to our listeners, you know, what you mean here? Yeah, absolutely. You know, taking a step back, I I believe that there's a a fundamental shift where people trust others more than institutions. And we're seeing this in fintech. We're seeing this across all different asset classes where relationships matter um, in venture capital in particular. Founders are seeking like-minded individuals that can truly deliver value to their company. What's changed in, say, even the last 12 months, um, you know, work life was started about a year and a half ago. And what's changed in the last 12 months is the fact that we see the solo capitalists now rising and leading Series A rounds, leading Series B rounds. If anything, um, we look like our own own operation where we source due diligence, win investments and also support portfolio companies. And I think that last piece is really critical in this environment where founders are actively seeking people who have relevant operating experience, a relevant network, maybe from the previous company that they were working at or from the previous startup that they've built. And so there's a shift that's happening where the solo capitalists are both investing very early. Um, You know, I typically spend six to eight months with a team before I invest. And that's often driven by the fact that they're still at Plaid or Palantir or they're gearing up to leave a company that still has a significant amount of upside. And so in that, um, the way that I'm most helpful or the way that other solo capitalists are helpful is we're very well networked and we like to get really involved in the company very early on in ways that founders aren't going out to traditionally pitch us or pitch a partnership, but rather they find the best solo capitalist that has relevant experience, and then it's a much more collaborative process. Yeah, great points, Brianne. I think you know the rise in solo capitalists is a trend that we've been exploring on this podcast quite a bit over the last few months. You know, there's just so many operators, influencers, athletes, musicians, and others that are 
starting their own firms and vehicles anchored on, you know, these deep relationships and networks and the value that they'll be able to provide. And of course, even media players such as Harry Stebbings, whose show you were also on. And I think anybody in the podcast world knows him who runs the 20 minute VC. He just raised 140 million and he's about, you know, 24 years old. So off of that, you know, you did this great work at Expedia, you were teaching at General Assembly, did a Y Combinator stint, and then Zendesk before finally jumping and starting work life. I would love to understand a little bit more about your founding story and, you know, how you got this off the ground. Yeah, absolutely. When I started thinking about next steps post Zendesk, I explored a a few options in parallel, actually. The first one was, do I join Figma, Notion, Airtable, and continue angel investing on evenings and weekends. The second one was, do I start a company? Um, I actually explored that path as well and and talked to a number of potential co-founders. But increasingly, the, the more conversations that I had, I got increasingly excited about the fact that there's this specialization that's happening in venture right now. I find that in the the last generation of new firms, you know, great venture capitalists like Kirsten Green, Ribbit, there's a number of these specialized firms that, you know, have been started and truly deliver a lot of value to founders. So I got increasingly excited about taking the fact that I'd previously been an executive at Zendesk. I had built this program called SaaS School on evenings and weekends, where I was bringing together executives in my network. We were creating lectures and workshops and hosting events, which would see north of 300 applications and we would typically invite say 30 to 40 founders and so it was a great opportunity for me to meet webflow which i ended up investing in loom netlify many of the great companies that we see have previously come through this program and so when i looked at the day-to-day of of what i was doing at zendesk and what i was doing on evenings and weekends i realized that if there was a way to turn my evenings and weekends work into my full-time gig like that's the position that i wanted to be in Mm -hmm. and so i decided to um, after making a series of angel investments um, i decided to go out and and raise outside money so i ended up raising 10 million dollars from sector line ceos i wanted to make sure that every move that i made with work life was creating a better community and delivering more value for founders And so in having all founder LPs in Fund One, what was incredibly helpful is both having access to great companies in the category. So having Eric from Zoom or Stuart from Slack and about 40 private company founders was a really awesome way for us to get started. It's a great way for the firm to signal that we're very serious and committed to the sector. Mm -hmm. It's a great way for us to leverage the executives and the operators at these specific companies to help us with workshops and community events, which we do on a weekly basis. And the third thing was that founders really seek peer level mentorship and they want to learn exactly how things are done and when they need to be done. And so I find that we're able to go levels and levels deeper on what companies should do next, who are the right people to hire, not necessarily sending them a long list of candidates of these are all of the people that are available, but we can be very bespoke in how we help companies because we have a lot of context and we have a lot of insight into our particular category, which is SaaS companies and more specifically SaaS companies that start more bottoms up. Right. And then this transition from, you know, moonlighting angel, as you kind of said, to full-time investor and venture capitalist, I think it's a probably a way bigger transition than people think. 
you know, what really surprised you about this transition and maybe what were the toughest lessons you learned in those first six months of raising and then deploying capital? Yeah, the the transition from angel to fund manager is actually a a really big step in quite a different direction, I would say. Um, When I talk to scouts at other firms, when I talk to active angel investors, when I talk to people that are doing this more as a passive hobby or as a way to build their brand or or meet the next startup before they potentially join full-time, you often do it more opportunistically. I will say that it typically, angel investing has historically either been viewed as a friends and family round where these are people that are, you're very close to, <laughs> right? or it's been positioned as people that you've previously worked with and you have a higher degree of confidence that they will be successful and you want to be supportive. The interesting thing with being a fund manager and with having your own set of LPs is the decision-making criteria goes up significantly. And so the way that I think about this today and the benefit of the solo capitalist model is the majority of my week is actually spent in finding ways to proactively engage and invest in companies that I'm really excited about. And I think this is a distinct difference where if you talk to large firms or if you talk to individuals that are more passively angel investing, oftentimes you're pretty heavily dependent on companies that come inbound or companies that are going out to pitch. The difference with the solo capitalist model is I almost view it very similar to an enterprise sales motion where the list, your target account list or the list of companies where Mm -hmm. they're in your strike zone, you have an opportunity to build a great relationship with the founder and you have very tangible ways to deliver value. Those are the types of companies that you want to spend your time on. Mm -hmm. You have a higher degree of confidence that you'll be able to invest Um, which in this environment, that's really hard. Um, You know, I I think when I look at emerging managers and solo capitalists, put a lot of hours against each company and the ability to do a lot of pre-work and to deliver value before you wire the money is pretty critical in this climate. Mm -hmm. I also find that with the solo capitalist model, what's awesome is that we can be more bespoke and we can be more specialized. And so, you know, there are a lot of great companies that I've met where, I love the team. Maybe they've been in my network for years, but the most critical piece is like, can I deliver a lot of value and can I deliver more value than a top tier firm or than any other name that's going to be on the cap table? So Brienne, you clearly have a lot of experience over the last few years in the startup community, angel investing, and of course, now being a fund manager yourself. A lot of our listeners and a lot of fintech practitioners are trying to get involved in angel investing, but there aren't exactly a lot of guidebooks out there. It's a murky process. In your experience, what are you know maybe some of the best practices that you've developed in the life cycle of the deal from sourcing deals all the way through signing in such a competitive landscape? Yeah, I take a really interesting approach here. I find that step one is choosing the right company. What's interesting for angel investing is founders are currently in a position where they are trying to achieve a few things through an angel investor. The first thing is leveraging your operating experience and things that you've previously worked on, which are tangible ways that you can help the company. The second thing is hiring. So to what extent is the network of you know your last company, your current company, who are the people that know you and trust you? And can you help a founder source and close candidates that are relevant to their business? The third thing I also find is community. And when founders are seeking um, to build a community of operators, oftentimes it's helpful to have a point person from different companies 
This is something that I highly encourage a lot of work-life companies to do. And this is something that I help with as far as thinking through cap table construction for the first round, where if you are solving a known problem and you identify a few companies that would serve as really good early users of your product, one of the most helpful things that you can do is to find the right point person or the right angel investor inside that company to really be your champion and to be an evangelist, to make sure that that company is using your software, to make sure that you have an entry point into that company, they can help you navigate the org. And so I find in a lot of ways, some of the best angel investors today are ones that are at relevant companies and that can give really good, relevant advice. They have no problem investing in in highly competitive companies. You know, Twitter and Substack, where you can start to have your develop your own voice and really have a strong opinion on where you see the world going is very helpful. I will say that I have never sourced an investment through Twitter, but Twitter can be a helpful way to connect with others around ideas. And I think that idea generation is a really good muscle to be built, especially if you ultimately want to become a venture capitalist. I actually talk about this a lot as far as like how I spend my time and how I structure my day. I have large blocks of unstructured time purely for reading, for printing and highlighting other people's substacks, for reading relevant books that help me to develop a thesis around where I see the world going. And I find getting into that mode of being confident enough to openly share your ideas And, you know, as we see with VC Twitter, you know, even your more contrarian or controversial ideas, like oftentimes those controversial ideas are early, maybe you've identified an an early behavior and something that will become true. That's a great scenario. Maybe you say something and it ultimately becomes not true. And that's fine as well. And so I think getting into that consistent cadence of saying, like, where do I see the world going? What are themes that I'm excited about? To openly share your ideas allows the right people to find you and specifically the right founders to say like, hey, I saw that. I agree with what you said. I want to work with you because we have a very similar view of the world. Yeah, Brianne, we are in the golden era for creators, thought leaders and great thinkers. You know, people that are just willing to provide insights or do research and, you know, build great distribution and a personal brand just have such a place on any cap table now. Of course, the aforementioned Harry Stebbings news is huge and others like Lenny Rachitsky and then in fintech, there's Nick Milanovic and so many others have built this amazing brand on top of their personal success and, you know, have spun out investing and other opportunities from it. So, you know, listeners who are out there, please get on Twitter. The conversations happening out there are fantastic and it can be a real boon for your career in this space. So perfect jumping off point, you know, some of these investments that you've made out of this fund have been spectacular successes. Some of them, you know, are companies that all of our listeners will be familiar with. We have Pipe, of course, and Harry Hurst was just on the show. Public.com, Life Abraham was on the show in January. Deal, Settle, and so many more. It's quite a range of companies. Can you talk about, you know, the thesis for work life and how you landed on these companies as your flagship investments? Yeah, absolutely. With work-life, what's interesting, and, and we when we first went to market, I think the perception in the ecosystem that we only do enterprise software. I actually want to take a very deep and systematic approach to how we think about work broadly. And I think this is a really important distinction because especially during COVID, we've seen that 
you know, there's this bifurcation of people that have been happy working remotely, that have historically worked at startups that are in a really good place um, in moments like this. We also see this demand where restaurants are hurting, retail is in a bad place. And so I think a lot about like, how do we improve work for the average American and how do we create new opportunities that weren't possible previously through software? And so from a software component, what's really interesting here is we're seeing a lot happening on the low code and no code side. I'm an investor in Webflow, which is doing incredibly well. What's awesome about Webflow is they have an amazing community where some of the world's best designers, I mean, 100,000 of the world's best designers are openly sharing their designs and empowering anyone to clone their work and to build on top of it. And so the way that we think about software development or launching a business online is has fundamentally changed. Um, we see that with Shopify for commerce. And, and, I, and I noticed this trend where over time, we're making it as easy as possible for anyone to start something. And so bringing down that barrier to start is one thing. Right. The second thing is once you have a presence online, how are you going to keep the lights on? And so looking at companies like Pipe and Settle and many of these new fintech offerings where I get super excited is the fact that we are introducing new asset classes and we are introducing alternative sources to venture capital, which, as we know, venture capital is very expensive. It's best suited for certain types of companies. And so as we see fewer VC dollars going into sectors like direct-to-consumer e-commerce, consumer packaged goods, things in that nature, it's awesome to see companies that are actually reinventing the mode in which people can raise money or how people choose to finance their business. And so that's an area that I get super excited about. I've also looked at this from more of a freelancer perspective as well, where, you know, a lot of these processes, the reason people are choosing to work nine to fives or they're choosing to stay at a large tech company is not because they don't have a desire to do something more. They don't have a desire to be entrepreneurial. The challenge is that we don't have the right tools in place and the right programs for them to leave a well-paying job or to stop driving for Uber or to change their way of life um, in a way that is sustainable. And so I do think a lot about, you know, fintech for freelancers. I've made a number of investments in that space. I think a lot about non-dilutive capital and, and what sort of offerings we have today and what we should have in the future And then more broadly, what's interesting is we're starting to see that in this shift from institutions to individuals, the platforms themselves are actually launching their own creator-friendly payments or monetization in ways that weren't possible before. And so I think historically, individuals have created content which has made Instagram an amazing platform or has created content on YouTube, which... You can monetize in different ways, likely through brand partnerships or advertising, but this is the first time that we're seeing platforms are actually empowering individuals to make meaningful outcomes by doing what they're great at doing. Absolutely. There's no better time to be a creator, freelancer, entrepreneur, or have multiple jobs. The flexibility is expanding in all directions. And I feel like every day we see a new tool, you know, just really improving a new part of the ecosystem. One thing I want to return to that you said is, you know, the dilutive capital and of course, Harry Hurst of Pipe, who's come up a few times now, you know, I was looking through his Twitter the other day for research for his episode, and he actually had a thread back in 2020 where he named you as probably the best ratio of check size 
to help that he has ever seen in his cap tables. What is your relationship with Harry and Pipe? And, you know, how did you make yourself so valuable to him? Pipe is a great example of a company that benefits from the fact that I had been building on evenings and weekends. <laughs> when I first met Harry, That's great. I will never forget this because I actually met him on my birthday. I talked him into meeting on my birthday because I heard that this company was doing something really special for SaaS companies. And so I'm like, I need to be part of this conversation. And so when I met Harry and we were brainstorming on what the long-term potential could be for Pipe, it was amazing to see, to just go through my Rolodex of SaaS companies that I met through SaaS school. Companies are starting more bottoms up. They're selling directly to their end users. They're building amazing products. You can get to a certain milestone in doing that. Historically, at some point, you'll reach an inflection point where you need to start selling into the enterprise. But we're seeing today that the market size for SMBs is actually quite large. And so with that in mind, as we were talking about all of these various inflection points for software companies, it became increasingly clear that to have something like Pipe, where you're able to finance your business based on your recurring revenue, it starts to change the trajectory of the company. And more importantly, it gives more power back to the early builders of the company. You know, I think this is something that as the startup ecosystem is maturing and as people are choosing companies in a more strategic way and many are optimizing for the value of their equity as they should because you put a lot of long hours and hard work into building a company. Time and time again, I talk to founders that are on their second or third startup where they really wish they would have spent more time understanding the pros and cons of raising venture capital or the pros and cons of dilution. And so with something like Pipe, from an investor point of view, that's the most founder-friendly message you can give. So with Pipe, I had invested in, in the first round of financing. And from there, Pipe is a great example in, in any work-life company to follow. After you write that first check and after you help bring in engineers and product designers and you work together on go-to-market, like you only need a handful of really smart people around the table from the very beginning and people that you trust. And then from there, we're creating more optionality for founders to really evaluate what are your options from a financing perspective? Many will still choose venture capital. You know, many will choose a traditional board. I do still believe in board governance, and I do believe that there are many amazing venture capitalists that truly can change the trajectory of a company by bringing in the right executives or by giving great advice. And so it's not a, an, a move away from venture capital, but rather it's a way of complementing all of the options that are available today. And the non-dilutive option is something that really resonates with founders. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know the next few years, if the last year or so is any indication, VC, again, is not necessarily going to be completely disrupted, but I think there will be more founder-friendly, complementary services available, which I think is a win for the entire ecosystem. So one thing I want to touch on before moving on, Worklife has six unicorns in its first year and a half. These companies include Clubhouse, Tonal, of course, we mentioned Pipe in public. A lot of people in Twitter, in the investing community, and technology are calling these just frothy, crazy valuations that are probably not sustainable. Of course, Clubhouse just being the lightning rod of all this conversation. 
How are you thinking about valuation in, in you know in your space right now and justifying you know a four billion dollar valuation for Clubhouse? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, in a lot of cases, moving earlier gives the firm a lot of credibility. You know, if we're the first money in investor, um, we're underwriting the risk and we're typically investing at a, a 10 to 13 post. Right. And so I, I'm, I'm less concerned with the, the monster valuations to follow. If anything, that's mm-hmm. a, a good sign that, that the risk that we've taken on has, <laughs> has been for a very good reason. That's a good thing. Um, I'll, I'll use Hoppin as an example because I feel like Hoppin is one that uh, many people have used, whether you've attended a conference or or, you know, given a talk at a conference, but it felt like Hoppin blew up overnight. And behind the scenes, the, the reason for that is that Hoppin started with the hardest problem first. And I find in today's environment, not many startups actually do that. Many in, in the SaaS space will typically start more bottoms up with smaller use cases and you incrementally scale into something much bigger. Um, when I first met Johnny, which was a very hard endeavor, actually, I had initially given a few talks on Hoppin's platform. I'm like, this is really interesting. It's large scale conferences. It's a differentiated experience from something like Zoom because they can facilitate breakouts and mingling and a lot of these things that make it feel more like a traditional conference. After being on the platform a couple of times, giving talks, I messaged a number of founders and said, I need to meet Johnny. Like, this is a great platform, amazing software. Thousands of people are using this at, at the same time. Like, this is really impressive. <laughs> yeah. And so when I met Johnny, I was immediately impressed by his ambition to build a sales team very early on. There were a number of startups that were kind of chipping away at smaller use cases. They were building, you know, group spaces for team happy hours. They were solving for maybe a company all hands. If you talk to Johnny and when you look at Hopin today, many events have 30,000 people attending these conferences at a single time, which is, is really hard to do well from a tech standpoint. It's also very high stakes. And so for a team to be ambitious enough to go to the largest conferences, to the most elite events, to close them quickly as a startup with a fairly lean team to start, I was very impressed with just the raw execution. I also find in this environment that when a company finds product market fit, it can scale very quickly. And so Hopin is a great example of that public has seen this as well. In Hopin's case, yes, COVID accelerated the business, but also they had this sales team that they were able to quickly close large enterprise contracts. In the case of public, you know, you have GameStop, which for better or for worse, did help the product. <laughs> and, and you also see that there's this amazing momentum that's coming right. behind public because we're in such a, a healthy IPO market where consistently we're giving individuals the ability to invest in companies that they know and love already. Like I truly felt like the Airbnb IPO day was such a gift to so many people that have been using the product for years. And so the fact that public is able to democratize investing in a way where anyone who has stayed at an Airbnb or they host on Airbnb can become an investor is a really special message. Yeah, I completely agree. And I mean, we talked about this on our episode with Life Abraham of Public, just talking about the importance 
of community and people investing in what they care about. You know, a couple examples he cited was, you know, in the wake of the George Floyd murder and the Black Lives Matter protests, people on public were pouring money into the four Fortune 500 uh, companies that are run by black CEOs. And then, of course, you have equity crowdfunding websites like Republic that are allowing people to invest in companies that they're very passionate about. And I think it's a far cry from the Robin Hood model, which has just been free commissions, gamifying everything. I think public and these companies that have put really a mission behind these things are, are set up for great success in the future. So last question I want to get to, Brienne, is the importance of diversity and inclusion, especially in venture capital. So I read that you have actually, you meet with every new female hire of your portfolio companies. What was the impetus for this initiative and is it sustainable? How long do you plan to keep this going as you continue investing? Work life is by design a community focused firm. When you're specialized in nature, the community events that we host on a weekly basis, many of them are tailored for founders. We're now introducing a series of programs for early builders at the company because I find with a consistent DNA across the portfolio, many companies ask very similar questions or the people that join those companies are the most likely candidates to create a really strong community together. Um, And the way that I think about this is, you know, with work life in particular, it's been awesome to see just the market, just the raw force behind changing the future of work. When I think about the creator economy, when I think about remote work and many of the challenges that families have faced during COVID, the research is suggesting that a lot of this sits with the women at home. And so I think a lot about work-life company culture, and that culture is something that I work with many of our startups on, where many of our startups are remote first or remote only. And so in a lot of ways, our ability to build community is both helpful for the firm because companies can learn from each other. And when we do that, we all get better. There's also a really important component about our on employee engagement and retention. And so that's an area where when it comes to the the day-to-day of any investor, a lot of investors do closing calls. I think that's single-handedly one of the, the best things that you can ask your investors to do is if there's a candidate in the pipeline that you're really excited about, getting an investor on the phone to talk to that person, it does a few things. It gives the person who's likely on the fence and in this environment likely has multiple offers the opportunity to hear firsthand why an investor is excited about the company. It really signals you know, the value of their equity and what the long-term potential is. From an investor standpoint, it's great because every relationship matters, whether it's closing this candidate for this particular startup or if it's reconnecting years down the road. I always say venture is this interesting, if you think in the sort of the advertising world, Venture is a very complicated multi-touch attribution (laughs) model where every single person that you meet can either source your next investment, they may join your future startup, uh, you may want to hire them at some point. And so every connection that you make truly matters in venture. And so I find that those conversations are a great way to build a relationship, to invite people to events to give them a higher degree of confidence that this is a great company, this is a great team, this is what the culture looks like, these are the benefits, and 
systems and programs that we have in place to make sure that you're successful. Because that's something that I think a lot about is, is employee retention, especially in the era of remote work. It is hard for companies to differentiate on culture. And so having those conversations very early on and Definitely. creating a one-to-one relationship with each new hire is really beneficial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as we move more and more to this hybrid model and remote work, initiatives like this are exactly what, where founders can stand out and investors, of course, can stand out in adding value. So, Brianne, you have reached the final part of the episode, which is the rapid-fire question round. We've got about 10 questions or so for you. Max, you know, 10, 15-second reply. Are you ready? Sounds great. All right, let's do it. First one, what is the first job that you ever had? First job that I ever had, I actually worked at a gym when I was in high school. All right. Love that. <laughs> I'm very, I'm very into fitness. I fall into the camp of riding Peloton every day. I wear a levels. I have an eight sleep. I'm, I'm very much oh. a fitness person. Oh, I was just about to ask, are you on eight sleep? So that you're definitely legit if you have eight sleep. So, or so I'm told. <laughs> Next one. What is the first fintech app that you ever downloaded? Wow. That's a great question. Probably Wealthfront or Robinhood. Two great ones. Now, how about who is your professional hero? Wow. Professional hero. You know, I feel pretty fortunate in having your own fund. I've been able to convince um, some of my professional heroes to work with me. I would say currently Kirsten Green at Forerunner. Great one. Now, you, of course, are an investor in public. They recently sent shockwaves through fintech in the wake of the GameStop scandal by moving to an optional tipping model for commissions as kind of their primary source of revenue. What are your thoughts on this tipping model? Yeah, I love it. I mean, I think this is part of the broader shift that's happening right now towards more transparent pricing, towards more creator-friendly pricing. Um, I like to see some of these new models. I think it's really educating the mainstream consumer on how things have previously (laughs) been done and how there are better ways to be more transparent. Yeah, absolutely. And we had the former CEO of Vanguard on and I floated the idea to him. He hated it at first. And then after a few minutes, I think he was like, I actually absolutely love the idea. I love the transparency. It's a brilliant innovation. So next one, how about NFTs? Do you believe the hype? I do. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of the art world. I also find today that you have a whole new class of creators. You have graphic designers, you have graffiti artists or street artists. You have so many different new classes of new art forms, rather. Um, And NFTs are a great way for people to get paid for their work and to build a relationship with their fans. Great. Now, let's say Brienne graduates, you know, Kent State again, you're about 21, 22 years old, and it's 2021. What do you do? Uh, I would be a software developer. I think I would spend more time coding. <laughs> I the the older I get and and the more time I spend with dev yeah. tools, the more I just want to be be building most of the day. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, how about you have a long night of work ahead? What is like your go-to dinner meal, binge meal? I'm a big fan of Mexican. I do a lot of street tacos. I feel like we're very fortunate on the West Coast to have really amazing street tacos and food trucks. So, I've been doing a lot of that lately. Great. Now, last few. You mentioned you spent four and a half years in Australia. What is your favorite memory from that time? Oh, that's a great question. Look, I think 
the the beauty of living in Australia is I, I recently read a stat where most people in the country live within two hours of the beach. And so I don't have a distinct memory, but waking up every morning and going to the beach is a pretty nice life. <laughs> that is pretty good. My sister studied abroad in Melbourne. I don't know if she ever fully came back <laughs> after after leaving there. She loved it. <laughs> That's great. All right. Now, what is your funniest work from home moment so far? I have found that during COVID, while I've been bored at home, I've been working with a number of friends and we've been doing a lot more pranks and just coming up with funny things to do on the internet. And so I built a social network in Figma called Stay at Home Valley, um, which had thousands of uh, people in the single Figma file per day where they were building their offices Someone proposed outside of the Dropbox office. Um, There were all these like very creative stunts that were happening in a single Figma file. And the funny thing that happened was I actually, um, I caught up with, I went for a walk with Dylan Field, the CEO of Figma. And he started chuckling and was talking about this Figma file that was blowing up and he was very excited about it. And it wasn't until maybe five minutes into the into him talking about it, it was like, you do know that that I built that, that you right? Built that. He's <laughs> like, there's no way. And I said, yeah, it was one of these things. We had a we had a work life team happy hour, and we, and we were coming up with fun, quirky things that we could do during COVID, and so we ended up mm-hmm. building this uh, crazy social network that replicated exactly what Silicon Valley looks like. Mm-hmm. That's great. I'll be sure to link it in the episode description. And now last question, if people want to learn more about Work Life and Brienne Kimmel, where can they go and how can they get involved? Yeah, definitely find me on Twitter. I'm at Brienne Kimmel. Our website is worklife.vc, which talks more about the firm and our investments to date. And uh, we also have careers, a careers page for all of our portfolio companies that are hiring too. Awesome. Well, there's some great companies on there. So I encourage everyone to check out the website. I will link that in the episode description as well. And Brienne, I want to thank you for coming on today's episode of the Wharton FinTech podcast. It was great learning about your story and all of your successes over the last few years. I'm excited to share it with our listeners. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more FinTech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauk.